You take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 7, and today we'll consider verses 13 through the end of the chapter. To bring us up to speed, again, I always want in a book like this to remind us where we are in the midst of the book, given that it is a drama. We see that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it says in verse 1. And that's just like the prophets of old began, the vision of Isaiah, or the words of Jeremiah. This book in particular is Jesus' revelation for the church. And he revealed his message to the Apostle John through four major visions. And we come to the second in chapter 4, where John says that, I looked and behold a door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice, that's the one of Christ from chapter 1, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. So as we move to the second scene of this great book, we move in the set of this motion picture, if you would, to heaven. And the drama is seen there of the fact that the Son is willing to do the Father's will, and this time He will bring judgment to the earth. So in chapters 4 and 5, the set was in heaven. And then the drama moved to the earth in chapter 6. But then we came again to chapter 7, and there's a break in the drama so that God can explain how His people are both on earth and in heaven. So let's consider that, the saints that are in heaven, here at the end of Revelation chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word, we pray that you would be gracious to us. Humble us today, Lord. Help us to see you high and lifted up. See you in your greatness, in your goodness. Cause us to have hearts that praise you and hearts that long to be with you and to enjoy your presence far above anything that is around us today. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time is a phrase that begins many of the stories that take us to faraway places. And it's enjoyable for us to get lost in the things that are magical in the things that are made up. Because those things can be an, enjoy, an enjoyable escape from the here and the noun. Well, what we find in the book of Revelation is a similar escape. Only this story that is told is not a fairy tale. Nor is it one of many apocalyptic tales. It's a true story of the future epic of how Jesus Christ will bring his kingdom to earth. It's no surprise today that many on earth don't care about Jesus, which is why they don't worship him today, which is why so few worship him. But one day, all of that will change, and it will begin when he begins to judge the earth. And that's what we saw when we traced the events of chapter 6, when God poured out his wrath on the earth, specifically through the Lamb. And that was shocking on the one hand, but it was also stressful on the other. Because as we read 
of these terrible things that will happen upon the earth, we wonder what will happen to the people who follow Jesus Christ who live among those who don't. So there's a break in the action in chapter 7 to give us an explanation so that we'll be set at ease. That's why we saw the 144,000 sealed, those who have the protection of God upon them. And Then we saw in the second part of this chapter the goodness and greatness of God. The goodness and greatness of God and that his care extends to the saints that are in heaven. So we move from the scenes on earth in the early part of chapter 7 to the scene in heaven, the scene that's before the throne. And this is what God's people can anticipate one day. We began that and we studied last week verses 9 through 12. And now we'll come to the end of the chapter where we just have the Lord magnified before our eyes, his greatness and his goodness. And he'll do this as we look at the two parts of this final portion of the chapter. Verses 13 and 14 are the first portion, and verses 15, 16, and 17 are the second. And you can even see in your Bibles how they're set off there with this dialogue that's going on between John and the elder. But what we'll find as we go through these two portions is the greatest contrast imaginable. We are finding the worst of times and the best of times. And it's as we see them, we will see the greatness of God to deliver and the greatness of God to bless. So let's look in verses 13 and 14 and see that John learned the identity of the great multitude. He learned who they were. In chapter 7, verse 13, the scene is now shifting from John simply seeing in verse 9, and then I looked and behold... Besides just seeing this great multitude, now he has a conversation with the elder. And we are supposed to look at this in such a way that what is being said is giving us a clear picture of what is taking place in glory. So look at verse 13. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? Two questions about those who are in white. And what those questions call you and me as a reader to do is to pay attention and to ponder, well, who are these people? And where did they come from? What is their identity? What is their origin? Verse 14 says, I said to him, John speaking, Sir, you know. See, John didn't know. Sir, you know, speaking to the elder, and the elder said to me, John, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the elder asked a question, not because he didn't know the answer, but because he wanted to make a point. He wanted to make sure that we knew the identity and the origin of this great multitude. And that's important because of the truths that God is going to communicate to us about his great deliverance. These saints were coming out of the great tribulation. That is to say that they are increasing as more and more of them were arriving. And John could see that. You see, those on earth were passing away and they were arriving in heaven. That is to say, they were dying either by natural means or by unnatural means at the hands of oppressors. 
but they were going from earth and entering into heaven. And we should know that of these, that they were indeed protected from God's wrath. But that doesn't mean that they didn't experience death. But when they did experience death, they came out and they entered heaven. The Bible says that they were coming from a, a trying time of tribulation. Tribulation is, is a word that means pressure. And pressure is a common experience of believers. John 13, 16, 33 says this, In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. John in this book wrote for us, chapter 2, verse 10, Ten days you will have tribulation. That's what Jesus ha- had to say to the church in Smyrna. God's people experience tribulation. Those who follow Christ will face hard times for their faith. And tribulation can be oppression or affliction of any sort. But as is stated here, the tribulation was great. That's to say it's not any kind of pressure, but it's a high degree of pressure. Furthermore, this is a specific time of great tribulation. Look in the margin of your Bible, which says Matthew 24, verse 21. And circle it. This is an extremely important cross-reference. It says this in Matthew 24. For then there will be a great tribulation. Same words. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So this unparalleled time of trouble and distress is something that is it's given to the, us in the Scriptures in many, many places. It's quite plain. This is known as the 70th week of Daniel. And Jesus affirmed that this in, this in the Olivet Discourse was not already happening, but it was something that was yet to come. It was a time that was so bad that all of human life would be extinguished if it would have lasted much longer. This is a time that is made plain to us in Scriptures. Now, does any other time in human history fit that kind of description? None like it ever before and never after. Does any time match it except when the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth in this book of Revelation? Well, no. And that's exactly what this book affirms as well. The context of this passage shows that this indeed is the great tribulation because those on earth affirmed how dire their situation is. They said in chapter 6, verse 14, the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So this is the unparalleled time of the great tribulation lasting seven years and it's truly the worst of times. And therefore we see that God delivers from the worst of times. God delivers from the worst of times, for the great multitude was coming out of the worst of times, the great tribulation. And that must have been an encouragement for the saints in Asia Minor. John had already told them that they were partners with him in tribulation. They were suffering for their faith. And if this great tribulation was any sort of oppression, these saints would have been assured that God could deliver them from tribulation, from bad times as they were delivered in the great tribulation. But if chapter 17 verse 14 is referring to God's deliverance of the saints from the very worst of times, what this shows is that God can indeed deliver his saints from anything they might be facing. 
in Asia Minor. My understanding of the text is that this is truly referring to the great tribulation. It's an argument that is arguing from the greater to the lesser. I was thinking of how to illustrate this, at least for some of the young people. If, if a person can lift a weight that is 100 pounds, he can lift a phone. This is easy. And the point is, if God can deliver his people from a time so great and so terrible as the great tribulation, he can deliver his people from any other situation. And that was to be a comfort to his people there in Asia Minor and by extension, us. And that's supposed to be an encouragement to us because we can get down when times are tough. Think about the times that you were down and the reasons that you get down. Sometimes it's because of a physical issue that you face and perhaps have faced for a long time. Perhaps it's because of relational issues that can be in the home, out of the home, at the workplace, all kinds of things that can be relational issues. Financial issues. That can happen inside and outside of an epidemic. Cultural issues, the things we face from day to day because of what our culture values. There are so many things that we face that bring us sorrow, and the list goes on and on. The truth of the matter is that God can deliver us from any of them, just as he is going to deliver his saints one day from the great tribulation. So just as we sang this morning, he can rescue us from all our foes. He will rescue the great multitude from the great, from the great tribulation. From that origin of where do they come from, we turn to their identity. Verse 14 goes on to say the answer to that. And they, were, have, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Obviously, this is not talking about laundry day and using a detergent that is made of blood. We know that blood, like grape juice and spaghetti sauce, it stains clothing. So obviously this description is not something literal. It's referring back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where a lamb was slain to atone for sin. And we know, according to what John said in John chapter 1, John the Baptist said that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God. He was the one who was slain to take away the sin of the world. We know from our study on the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sin. We know from Romans 3.25 that God had Jesus bear his wrath for our sin so that God would be shown to be righteous in his judgment. God would not be righteous if he just forgave sin at a whim. And the penalty was never paid for. But Christ paid for our sin. He shed his blood. And Hebrews 9.22 makes it clear. Without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. Now that's a passage of scripture that you hear often when we observe the Lord's Supper and one of the men prays. When we observe the Lord's Supper and take the elements of the bread and the cup that signify the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we hear this verse. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And it's a good reminder for us that apart from what Jesus did for us, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's no hope of standing before God as these people are standing before God. Think of what the prophet Isaiah said. He said, 
our righteous deeds, not our bad deeds, but our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, filthy rags. That's why we should say like the songwriter said, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. You see what distinguishes this group, this great multitude coming out of the great tribulation from all the rest of the people on the earth at that time who were experiencing the wrath of God was one thing. They were forgiven. The others weren't. These had washed their robes. It pointed to some experience in their life before their death that they had called upon the Lord to save them from their sin. So not only does God deliver from the worst of times, but God delivers from sin because this great multitude was, has washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They were forgiven. The question then is, are you? I've asked that question of you before, but I'll ask it again. Are you forgiven? As the song says, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I hope that what comes to your mind is not what I often hear as a pastor when I go around town. When people find out that I'm a pastor, they all of a sudden feel the need to tell me about all the good that they are committed to do. And while I'm encouraged that they want to do something good, All that really rings in my mind is, are you forgiven of all of your sin? Because that's what truly distinguishes you as a person who follows the Lord. I wonder if people are washed in the blood. And that's something I always want to know about every person. That they have a confidence that they've been forgiven of their sin. And that's what we're teaching our young people. That there's no hope of knowing God apart from the forgiveness of sin. But here we have the plain teaching that God is able to deliver from sin. And He forgives all who come to Him. This multitude coming out of the Great Tribulation shows us that God is great in His deliverance. And it's magnified by the depths from which He can deliver. And now as the verse go on, we learn about the greatness of God's blessing. We see this in verses 15 through 17. This is where John learns the provision for the great multitude, the provision for the great multitude. Look at verse 15. It begins with a very important word, therefore. That is to say, on the basis of the white robes, on the basis of their purity because they've been forgiven of all their sins, all the following is theirs as a result. What comes next is amazing. Verse 15 says, therefore, They are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. So what God promises is that He will reward them with priestly service. A priest ministers in a temple and these will be in His temple and their service is to a God and they will serve Him. You say, well, what will they do when they serve God? Well, as we already saw in chapter 7, we'll see later on in chapter 22, verse 3, those who serve God Worship God. 
you found as we go through these windows into heaven that those who are in heaven are not bored. They're not lazy. They're not lying around. They're not wondering what to do. They're all rejoicing. They're all singing. They're all bringing praise and glory to God. It's a wonderful time. And these white-robed saints will continually, day and night, abide in His presence before His throne. That is the most privileged position in the universe. Sometimes it's hard for us to grasp because we're not there yet. But we read in the Scriptures, particularly the Psalms, that it is a place of wonderful blessing. Psalm 1611, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 21.6, you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Think about how hard it is, mom and dad, to keep your kids occupied and happy. If you can get them into an activity and going, and for some degree of time, and that they enjoy it, that's quite an accomplishment. But we can only do that for a handful of minutes, maybe an hour. It's hard to keep even ourselves occupied and enjoying. But the scriptures plainly say again and again that he is able to bring us the greatest of pleasures forever. That's amazing. And we find a few of those great blessings as the passage goes on. As the passage goes on, it turns to the future. That's where you see in verse 15, 16, and 17, all the verbs turn to future. This is what will happen. What will happen? Well, God will protect His people from all harm and supply their every need. God will protect them from all harm and supply their every need. Let's read about it. Verse 15. And He who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, will shelter them with his presence. The idea there is of a tent. He will spread his tent over them. Now, you've probably been camping before and set up a tent. My kids particularly like to tent and go camping once a year in the backyard. And the good thing about a tent is that it covers you. It's your security. Even as you're in the tent, you look up And you see the sky, you see the stars. And God has set the atmosphere as a covering, as a tent over the earth. And He promises that one day, His very presence will cover us. And what that shows is we're going to have benefits that we we haven't had. The next benefits we find in verse 17 are all spoken in the negative to affirm the positive. Verse seven, or 16 says this, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Now how does that sound to you? Really? How many of us have truly ever been without food or drink? How many of us wonder if we're going to have lunch today? Or dinner tonight. You know, hunger and thirst are things that are common around the world. And they're common in many other years of human history. But we as Americans often don't struggle with these things. And and I, I don't mean to 
I don't mean to rain on the parade of these verses. What I'm trying to show us is that we who are wealthy in this world, these words sound a little bit different to us. Because we always have something to eat. As long as things go fine and the stock market keeps going, the economy keeps going. Goes on to say the sun and the scorching heat. And, and most Americans can't even identify with that. We work inside in air-conditioned spaces. But many other places in the world, there is no such comfort and convenience. We have men who work in the outside spaces, who are excavating their land, working on the roof, in the heat of the day. And it's hot. Long, hard hours. Those verses, as we see them, are refreshment. As we work outside and it's hot and it's hard, this is a refreshing time. But all in all, as American Christians, we may struggle to understand a few things. How dependent we are on God and how much we need Him. Because we are so insulated by all the things we have. Remember that Jesus said in the Gospels that it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of of heaven. And that is to say why so many around us don't worship Jesus Christ. Because they are rich and they love their riches and they don't love Christ. And they don't see why they would ever need Him. But the fact that you and I have repented and trusted Christ as wealthy people is an absolute miracle. The fact that we hold on to the things of earth loosely not like our neighbor, is a miracle. The fact that we choose to give up for the sake of the furtherance of God's kingdom on this earth is a miracle. Revelation 7.16 assures us that in glory, God will see to it that no need goes unmet. No thirst, no hunger, no sunstroke, nor no other harmful heat at all. And indeed, as we have so much in America, we do have to work hard for those things to be supplied, for those things to be for our families. But in glory, God will ensure that they're all supplied for. No need goes unmet. How is God going to do that? Well, verse 17 shows us it's what the Father and the Lamb will do on our behalf. Verse 17 says this, For, or because, because the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The lamb will be their shepherd. And that's quite a paradox of images. But we know plainly that it is that Jesus will ensure that all of his people's needs are met, because a shepherd cares for his sheep. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I will not want a shepherd cares for his sheep. Goes on to say that he will guide them. Now I was meditating on this passage and on eternity this week. And when you do that, it helps us realize how feeble and dependent we are. Have you ever purposefully thought about living forever? Because that's going to be very different than the life that you and I are used to. 
you and I have a pretty agreed-upon cycle of life. Babies, toddlers, elementary school, high school, perhaps at university, a good job, a 401k, retirement, Social Security, and that's it. We have this cycle given we have a certain amount of wealth in our society and we have a certain projected lifespan. And you and I work and sweat to survive and plan for all those things so that we can get through these years. But what happens when our life isn't just some decades long? What happens when life is forever? And there are no education years. There are no retirement years. What are we going to do? What that does is boggle our mind a a bit. How are we going to navigate eternity? We struggle to navigate the years we have here. Not to worry, there's one who's fit to guide us. And that's the Lamb of God who will guide us and ensure that all of our spiritual and all of our physical needs are met. He will lead us to springs of living water. Last, we see the Father will wipe away every tear. And that's an inexpressible comfort. Because no matter who we are or what we have, no one escapes sorrow in life. And here is the promise that our Heavenly Father will comfort us. And when we wrap up all of these blessings, what it shows us is that one day in glory, when the forgiven are with God, they will be satisfied in every way and happy and joyous and blessed. That's a wonderful thing. It's not a simple once upon a time fairy tale. That is the truth. That is the future. And it is for everyone who is forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Father, we pray that you will draw our hearts to that time. Father, we want to be useful in the days that you give us here, but how we long to be free from this sin-cursed world. How we long to be free from the sin that plagues us today. How we long to be clothed in white and completely in victory over death and over sin, and to enjoy your pleasures forevermore. Father, we pray that you would cause us to delight in you and call other people from the vanities of this world to enjoy the pleasures at your right hand forevermore. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.